Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Stephanie Lampkin, who is the founder and CEO of Blendor. She's also a Fortune 40 under 40, Stanford grad, MIT MBA. And with Blendor, she helps companies with her augmented intelligence and people analytics software to hire and manage a diverse workforce. They're helping companies get results through scalable diversity hiring. And what Blendor does is aggregates diverse talent from multiple sources to broaden your talent search and then uses blind review and analytics to mitigate unconscious bias from source to hire. As always, the show notes are justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. And this episode is a gem absolute gem filled with so many insights from Stephanie about the challenges of being a woman of color in the tech industry, how she's overcome that over time. Obviously, there's a lot to go through with this and what she's building is incredible and it's going to be even more important moving forward. Without further ado, here is Stephanie Lampkin, founder and CEO of Blendor. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And there's so much to dive into with Blendor and your journey and uh, it's one of the things I want to talk about first, and just to get started with, I heard that you taught yourself coding at age 13. How did you first get started with that, Stephanie? So I actually had an aunt who graduated from the University of Maryland with a computer science degree in 1984. She soon thereafter took a job in Connecticut, um, but I spent my summers kind of shadowing her and she introduced me to this organization called Black Data Processing Associates, BDPA for short. So I started coding through them. I wasn't completely self-taught. I participated in the summer um, coding bootcamp, basically, before it was called that, um, <laughs> in which we trained for a couple months and then had a competition at the end, which is now known as a hackathon. But back then, <laughs> it was called a high school computer competition. So. Yeah, I was one of those nerdy kids who competed in computer science. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. And obviously, you've done a lot since, and we're going to go through all of that. But also for people, I want to have context. So what is Blendor, what you're working on now? Blendor is an AI and people analytics platform that helps companies um, hire and retain a diverse workforce. Uh, we do so by mitigating unconscious bias and leveraging big data and analytics to drive uh, more meritocratic decision-making. And and with that, so your journey to Blendor, to founding Blendor, how did you decide on actually pulling the trigger to, to do this, to really take the leap and actually found this company? Because there's clearly this is an issue and it's been an issue for a long time. How did you get to the point of, okay, now I want to start this back in 2015? So Blendor is actually my second startup that I've worked on full-time. The first one was in travel. And it didn't really take off as a travel tech company. And I was sort of at my wits end and interviewed for a position at Google, this analytical lead position. And uh, I thought it went well, made it to the final rounds. But the recruiter came back and said that basically they didn't think I was technical enough. And uh, this was with a Stanford engineering degree and and an MIT master's degree. So I politely declined. Um, they, I think they tried to put me in like a more sales or marketing interview process, but um, I kind of went back to the drawing board on the startup side and entered a um, 
hackathon where you had to come up with an idea on the fly. And this was right after Google and a lot of other big tech companies started publishing their diversity numbers, um, being around 2% Black, 3% African-American, 30% female, with the story that it's a pipeline problem, that they just can't find qualified women and people of color. So I came up with the idea for Blendor as a way to connect companies with diverse talent in a scalable way. With that, at that point in time, what did you see as being in terms of what the the company would look like, what it would do initially? Because I, I imagine there's many ways you could go about it. I'm curious as to what kind of that initial vision of of the company was for what it would be. Yeah, the company has definitely pivoted and evolved since then. Um, but initially, I sort of imagined it being um, a really great talent marketplace for companies to um, connect and match with talent in much the same way we do with dating. So mobile friendly, you know, you can do it on the train, you can do it, um, you know, wherever in terms of just finding um, and getting access to talent that you may not have otherwise considered and leveraging AI um, and the benefits of having all of this data about people and their professional backgrounds in order to um, just tap into talent pools that you may not um, frequent because of your existing um, proxies for uh, who you deem to be talented, which is often correlated with things like Ivy League degrees and GPAs and things like that. So <laughs> um, yeah, the initial vision was just to really improve um, the whole talent matching process. And and when you were going through, you had this idea for this, basically went to the hackathon to, to create this. Like, What did you actually create then during that hackathon uh, at the time? So we just created a prototype of um, how the app would look. So really just mapping out um, what sort of user experience a recruiter would have in terms of accessing a candidate and vice versa, what sort of user experience a candidate would have in um, finding a an employer, a job. And it was very similar. This is right around the time Tinder first came out and became really popular. So very similar um, sort of double opt-in matching. Um, and yeah, we just kind of created the concept for it during that, during that hackathon. And, and from that experience then, like creating the, creating the concept, you had that kind of first initial uh, part of this built out then. You have to get people on the platform. You have to get people in there. How are you acquiring those first uh, those first users then for Blendor? I just started pitching everywhere that I could. So I got so much positive feedback about the idea that I built the first product myself. Um, literally just locked myself in my mom's basement for two months <laughs> and built the first version of the app. And then um, I drove back to California. So at that time, I had been on the East Coast for a while and um, landed a couple of really key meetings with like the chief diversity officer at Intel, um, and then um, just started pitching at various pitch competitions and events, and the interest just came flooding in. At that time as well, were you fundraising? How early, I guess I would say, were you fundraising for Blendor? How did you approach that side of things? Because uh, oftentimes it takes funding to get the business off the ground. Like, How are you looking at funding early on? Yeah, I started fundraising almost immediately. I'm, I'm an all or nothing type person. It's really hard for me to moonlight. So um, for the most part, I began the fundraising process immediately after completion of the minimally viable product. And how did that end up going for you, Stephanie? Well, uh, let's see. So I, I came to California in January 
Um, I won a couple pitch competitions, so we got like 5K checks here and there. Nice. Um, but I probably didn't get my first um, big investment from this angel group until later on in the fall. So it took me a good um, like seven months before I was able to uh, raise anything substantial. And even then it was like a 35K check, but it was enough to really get me to the next milestone. And and for other founders out there who you know are trying to get their businesses off the ground, they're fundraising and they're, they have this idea they're excited about, they built out maybe a prototype, an MVP, and you just said it's, you know, it took you seven months to get that first kind of check. Take me through that process. Where was your head at in those seven months? How are you approaching that process in terms of getting meetings? Like, I'm just curious to, for other people who are going to be interested in, and really want to raise funding for their business as well. Um, it's a lot like sales. Um, so you just kind of become laser focused on identifying which leads and channels um, are likely to yield the highest return. So I just did a ton of research and um uh, reaching out to folks for warm introductions and just reading about different um, investors, social impact investors, those focused on diversity and um, setting up meetings with folks so that I could start building the relationships. I think in hindsight, I would have focused more on the relationship building um, because a lot of the big deals that happen in Silicon Valley are, are based on who makes the intro um, and and how close of a connection you are. So um, so yeah, I think it's it was important for me um, as sort of an outsider to the whole Bay Area fundraising ecosystem to do my research. Um, but then you kind of just you just have to double down on relationship building. And with that too, during those seven months, I mean, how much of your time was fundraising versus product versus other aspects of the business? Because I've kind of heard both in terms of that, or it can be all encompassing for sure on the fundraising side. I'm just curious for your experience, Stephanie, what, what was that like? I would say a good two thirds of my time was focused on fundraising in those early, um, early days. And um I say the remaining third was focused on um, product and hiring and um, sales and marketing. I don't know that that is the optimal ratio. I kind of wish I could have spent a little bit more time on product, but it's tough, right? When you yeah. don't have the capital um, and resources and talent resources to really dedicate what you need. But um, but yeah, it it was a uh, it was a key focus area for me in particular because I just I don't have the ability to raise a friends and family round. And, yeah. you know, an easy, quick way for a startup to fail, especially in the early days, is to run out of capital. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of how and why I divided my time. And it's interesting you mentioned that because a lot of times it's kind of glossed over that that family and friends round where it's like, oh, yeah, I raised 150K, 100K, 200K uh, from family and friends, a small round. And you're saying it took seven months to get to a $35,000 check, uh, which is such a, a, a crazy experience. I mean, with other people who've don't have a network. You mentioned you would have focused on relationship building. I mean, what, what were some of those things you would have done in that regard? Because I mean, there's definitely people listening who don't have a network of investors either. And they're, I'm sure, wondering, and I'm curious as to how you may have gone about that that process in terms of relationship building, knowing that you're kind of new to an area, new to getting investors. Yeah. You know, there's, um, there's a growing network of angel investors um, and um, corporate investment arms and the ways in which you can raise early stage capital have become more and more diverse over time. And so 
Um, when it comes to relationship building, I think um, entrepreneurs try to be a little bit too targeted in who they talk to and um, where and how, when I think um, it's good to just kind of network among um, people who you're loosely connected to, but also, um, you know, go to conferences and events or um, places where um, people of power and influence um, tend to spend their time and just get to know and understand their priorities and um, things that they like to do and, um, you know, make make a space for them to get to know you, um, particularly if you are from, if you are someone from an underrepresented background, um, there's so few of us that yeah. are given access to these circles. So the ways in which we sort of overcome the fact that we are so underrepresented is to build those bridges and um, just allow folks to, you know, to get to know you on a personal and social level. And from, from that experience then, going through you know, seven months or so, you're building the product, but mostly focusing on fundraising, then once you get that kind of initial round of financing from Angel Group, what then was the kind of the focus of the business or what did you, what did you do with, the, with Blendor then after that, Stephanie? So the focus at that point was um, product development, like building the enterprise product um, so that we could uh, continue growth and, and really solidify ourselves as a legitimate AI SaaS company, uh, which takes a lot of work. I think <laughs> when it comes to B2C companies like, you know, Facebook or Snapchat, um, we think that, oh yeah, you just have to, you know, you build an app and people will come. But B2B is a lot trickier. It, it requires a lot, um, a lot more um, intentionality and resources. So, um, so yeah, that was really the next the next focus area after we got the initial capital. And, and from that too, then, I mean, you mentioned the challenges of, of B2B and I've heard that echoed before for sure a number of times. I, how, how are you looking at kind of your sales strategy, targeted companies um, as you're looking at Blendor? Okay, we know we have this product that is going to be very helpful. It's not going to be for everyone right away in terms of who we want to target. Like, how would you look at that from a sales side of, okay, let's get in with XYZ companies. I'm curious about your strategy there, Stephanie. Yeah, it was tough because we had to be very narrow in scope in terms of our ideal customers very early on. And when you are, you know, trying to just keep the lights on in a startup, it's tough to be selective about your customers. But it <laughs> yeah. is important because you want to make sure that you uh, serve um, at least one or two customers really well um, and get the feedback you need to optimize and, and expand. So we were very intentional about being focused on um, large multinational tech companies um, and creating our marketing strategy and sales strategy in alignment with the unique needs of that particular industry. Um, and it, you know, it worked out pretty well. And that was also the reason why I moved to Silicon Valley to launch the company is because I wanted to really tap into um, the Fortune 100 tech companies that were growing exponentially year over year, um, but were relatively early in their journey of um, figuring out diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy. Yeah, and they have obviously so many resources, so that seems like a, a great fit for that. And I guess for other companies kind of uh, wondering, I mean, at what point do you think it's 
I mean, necessary to move to Silicon Valley to have a company, especially during COVID. It's a whole different world now we're, we're mm. in at this point. But I'm curious on what your views would be, knowing that you did, you did move there for starting the company. But would you say it's different now? Or I'm just curious on your perspective. I'm I'm relatively biased about just being close to your your target customers, your target consumers. So as mentioned, we knew that we were going to be narrowly focused on big tech. And so it made sense for us to be in Silicon Valley. We could have also been in Seattle or Boulder or Austin. I actually looked at some of those locations as well. Um, but uh, we made the decision for Silicon Valley just based on a confluence of factors. Um, I don't think moving to Silicon Valley is the best move for everyone. Um, it was just the best move for us. Yeah. Totally. And one thing too, just from that experience of you started in 2015, uh, raised some funding. I know you got a fair amount of press, I think it was 2016. How did that impact the business? I'm just curious on how that went with whether it be the Fast Company or other other articles and like Forbes and such. How did that impact uh, Blendor and what you guys were doing? Yeah. So we've been, it, it really just in, increased, um, you know, our, our customer pipeline, inbound leads. Um Whenever some articles written or um, we get a high profile speaking engagement or some something in social media relating to Blendor, we see um, a significant uptick in um, companies reaching out to us wanting to you know get a demo or learn more about our product. So I've been very fortunate in that regard because we haven't had a dedicated marketing or social media person. It's really just been relatively organic. Um, so yeah, I'm. I'm a big fan of leveraging um, the press and, and PR from a sales perspective. From a fundraising perspective, in some cases, it can be a little counterintuitive. Um, some investors see the high profile um, PR as a distraction, or um, in some cases, uh, it you know, it's more glitz and glam than it is substance. So, mm. you know, I would tread with caution in terms of over overly investing in PR um, and un versus under investing in, in other aspects of the business. But for us, fortunately, it was all organic. Um, and, um, you know, we've been able to leverage it from a sales perspective. Yeah. And one of the things that going back to is you mentioning the we. So who is the, the, the people behind Blendor and especially in the early days and leading to, to now, how has that kind of evolved? I'm curious. Yeah. So uh, my CTO was a first hire, um, Daniel Malmer. I actually met him at a tech inclusion conference, which is a diversity and inclusion annual conference held in San Francisco and New York. And um, come to find out he uh, was a judge or advisor for this accelerator that I had applied to. So he saw my application and remembered me, kind of put in a good word and we got accepted. And then he later um, later on joined the team full time. Um, I then brought on a couple more engineers that I worked with my previous startup, um, my head of product. Um, so yeah, and it's a, it's a pretty diverse team. And what I love about it too is, you know, we have folks who have what would be considered non-traditional backgrounds um, so just looking at their resumes, they wouldn't necessarily be picked up by a Google or a Facebook, but they're absolutely extraordinary. So it kind of fits um, <laughs> our thesis in that, yeah. you know, you really 
um, could be missing out on great talent by using proxies for um, gauging uh, potential. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly what your your product is. And I, I'm curious. I want to dive more into Blendor today in terms of what what does uh, the product look like? Your different offerings. I know there's a, a few different things there. Uh, I want people to understand like what this all has to offer. So if you could talk a little bit more about that, I'd love to hear more. Yeah. So I started to learn a little bit more about through our customers and just um, research about the impact of bias in the entire. Um, recruiting process from the point of a job description being crafted using certain language to, you know, even when um, the candidates reach the final stages of the interview with the hiring manager. And so we took a step back in trying to design our product and, and add additional product offerings that could address that. So we removed names, photos, any indication of age, gender, ethnicity from the initial candidate review. But then we also put measures in to track how far along different demographics of candidates make it through every stage of the funnel and thus being able to identify where bias can be impacting key decision-making. So kind of driving more individual accountability or team accountability um, throughout the um, entire recruiting process. And then in 2017, I launched um, what started off as just like a customer acquisition tool called BlendScore, where I went out and audited 200 tech companies on various metrics of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So analyzing everything from their board uh, the demographics of their senior leadership team, their overall um, employee demographics, different benefits, policies, initiatives, investments that they were making um, to kind of just uh, gauge um, how well companies were executing on their commitments around <laughs> diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so what started off is, you know, and I made the, the index and ranking public, what started off as a customer acquisition tool is now um, something that we've productized in, in that we have created this like credit karma like tool yeah. where companies can not only see their score, but also get um, insights and recommendations on how they can improve. And we can provide um, the ability to actually track progress and create more accountability and metrics, visible metrics. Um, that can drive behavior change. With Blendor as well, on the sourcing side, with with the talent side, how are you getting kind of diverse talent uh, through Blendor? I mean, I'm curious on, on how that's going for, for these companies because I know you mentioned that on the website and everything as well. I'm curious on how the talent side goes for, for you guys. Yeah, so two primary methods. Um, one is just through direct signups. So candidates can go on Blendor.com and um, and sign up and be invited to join the platform. Um, but then our primary source of diverse candidates is actually working through partners like um, professional organizations that target certain demographics of people. So one example is uh, the National Black MBA Association. It's one of the largest uh, professional networks of African-Americans um, in business. Um, there's also the Society of Women Engineers or um, Anita Borg Institute, which hosts Grace Hopper every year. It has about um, 50,000 women computer scientists. So we work Jeez. with our partners to, um, by tapping into their resume databases and their networks, 
to pair and match with companies that are looking to um, get access to more diverse pools of talent. And on that note as well, Stephanie, with the partner side of things, how are you looking at or viewing uh, new partners or how you want to approach partnerships? Because uh, it seems like it's been a, a big part of Blendor so far. I'm curious as to how you kind of look at that with your company. Yeah, we're actively seeking out new partnerships um, because we realize that they've already forged the trust and relationships with um, these individuals who may not have had the best experiences um, applying to jobs directly, either you know online or otherwise. I know personally, um, my first job out of college, um, which was Microsoft, came through um, NSBE, which is the National Society of Black Engineers. So um, we are really bullish on the potential that forging valuable partnerships can have in terms of bridging the gaps of getting companies access to more diverse talent pools. And as you mentioned earlier, you're talking about the big tech companies that you you were partnering with and working with as as clients. How has that evolved over time in terms of like who you're working with now, or or even who you kind of are your your optimal companies you're looking for next? I'm curious about that as well, Stephanie. Well, it's helped drive the way in which we qualify um, leads. Um, so we're no longer just strictly tech companies. We we work with companies of all sizes and industries, but um, we have figured out. Uh, secret sauce for identifying (laughs) um, clients that are really at the stage of um, getting the most out of our products and services. So we tend to only work with companies that have already put in some measures um, for investing in diversity, whether it be they've hired a chief diversity officer or they are publishing their annual report on diversity metrics or Um, they've earmarked funds, um, specifically focused on this area. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it typically ends up being still relatively large companies. So companies, uh, 5,000 employees or more that have started to make those investments, but we are seeing companies earlier and earlier start to think more critically about prioritizing diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, the challenge is, um, getting convincing them that they need to put real budget and resources behind it. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 I'm sure a, a massive challenge and with that and to that point like when someone is interested so a company is actually interested in, in working with Blendor what is that sign up process like and what is that that kind of onboarding process like for them I'm curious about how it actually looks for companies if they're going to use Blendor. It's kind of like a doctor's office. We have an intake form. So you sign up for a demo and we say thank you. Can you please fill out this quick sort of survey to kind of let us know where you are in your journey. Um, And it gives us a better sense of whether or not they're ready. And it's pretty obvious who is and who isn't. Um, So it, it doesn't take any great deal of analysis, but it, it was necessary because we get a ton of inbound requests for demos. Um, But some people just aren't ready. You know, they, they don't have senior leader buy-in or they don't have budget Um, it's more aspirational than it is, um, anything, um, that they are seeking to execute in the short term. So in order for us to use our sales and account teams more efficiently, we kind of have to filter through the companies that are really taking it seriously. 
And from that, then, what is that, that next step where companies are kind of taking it seriously? They are going through that. And you mentioned like an intake, like a doctor's office almost. Then the onboarding process for that, I mean, how soon, are, I guess I'm curious as to how soon they're actually working with you and be, being able to like get, reap the benefits of Blendor. Oh, relatively immediately. So we start off doing um, our internal review. So BlendScore, the public version of BlendScore that you can see on Blendor.com is an external review. We just look at publicly available information. Um, But once we bring you on as a client, we do an internal review and looking at um, some of your metrics and your policies, and that will help drive um, also your your demographics, your team and org demographics, and that will help drive um, the recommendations and, and the talent options that we provide you. Um, and that actually took a couple of years to optimize. We initially just kind of went in like everyone else and just dumping a resume database in front of everyone, yeah. but we found that it didn't really go anywhere. Um, we needed more context for providing Um, candidate recommendations. So now we're able to go in and say, okay, it looks like your sales team is, has gender parity, 50% men, 50% women, but your engineering team is still significantly lacking and is actually um, at, you know, given that it's only 10% women is 10 points less than industry average and 20 points less than um, the average for companies of your geography. So we probably want to focus a lot of your recruiting efforts um, there. And so, yeah, that's kind of how we leverage the internal assessments to drive better um, talent acquisition strategy. And one of the things you mentioned uh, a little while ago is you know needing that buy-in from senior leadership and, and some companies just aren't ready from that. Uh, to that point, though, I mean, there's I'm sure companies where lower level employees and junior, more junior employees are interested or they've heard of this and they think it could be useful. I mean, how can someone in that position then kind of help champion this type of thing to have a more diverse and you know, inclusive workforce as well for their company? I'm curious about that. Yeah, there are a lot of tools out there and resources available, um, DNI toolkits and um, best practices and white papers I would recommend for um, you know, more frontline HR people who are trying to make the case to senior level management to invest in this. Um, unfortunately, as a tech company, we can't afford to do that work for you. The best yeah. we can do is give you um, the methodologies that we use for evaluating companies in their maturity. Um, but, you know, one of my one of my favorite video clips around this issue is uh, Melody Hobson, who's the president of Aerial Investments. She says, you know, diversity is the only business area where companies can continue to not meet their numbers year over year without fear of retribution. Um, no one has to convince a senior level executive to meet their finance numbers or to meet their hiring targets or or whatever. This is the only thing um, that we keep talking about in every board meeting. And we're just allowed to say, oh, we're working on that. We're working on that, right? So I think for us, um, it's really critical for us to gauge whether or not companies are um, reaching out to us because they just want to check another box that says we're working on this um, versus companies who really understand that this is like everything else. You you have to hit your numbers. 
Um, and there has to be accountability. So if you aren't in that mindset and you don't have um, the senior leadership required to hold people accountable, then, you know, it's it's a waste of everyone's time and money, really. Yeah. And one of the things that just want to go back to, I'm thinking of where you're at now with Blendor and, and all you've kind of done at, up to this point, you mentioned that, you know, Blend score in 2017 was a, a big thing and that's that's evolved since. And I'm thinking back to the fact that you had raised the initial funding of like 35,000. Um, at, at what point did you decide to raise more funding or I mean, did you raise more funding? I, th- I thought I saw you did, but I'm just curious how that went uh, after that initial funding. I just want to touch on that point as well real quick. Yeah, so we've raised uh, 1.2 million in total um, in the five years of existence. And honestly, that's just a small fraction of what um, we set out to raise, but it's just kind of how things have have shaken down. I'm not sure if you heard the statistic, but um, Black women receive only about 0.0006% of venture capital. They're actually only, I'm actually one of less than 50 Black women in the world to ever raise over a million dollars. So it's, yeah, the the numbers are really, really slim. So um, we've kind of just had to work with what we've been given in terms of we get these small infusions of capital um, you know, about every couple years or so. And so it's, you know, it's, there are pros and cons to that. I mean, the, the cons are obvious in that I haven't been able to, we haven't been able to build and grow as quickly. Um, yeah. but it's required us to be laser focused on our customers and our revenue. And so, um, and, and, you know, we still have great equity for ourselves and future, future employees. So, um, I think, in the end, we will win. Um, and there will be a lot of FOMO from the yes. investor class. But um, and, I, and I think that's what it takes, to be honest. It's a very FOMO. Venture capital is a very FOMO-driven industry. Um, and so we need a few pioneers to win um, in order to really drive that behavior change. I mean, to that point, just to dive a little deeper on that, because it's such an interesting point. So I interviewed uh, Olivia Owens from iPhone Women of Color. She's mm-hmm. the head of partnerships at iPhone Women as well. Then she decided to start iPhone Women of Color within, within that. And she she did mention some of those stats, which is just mind-blowing on how low. I mean, women in general, and then obviously women of color as well. And to that point then, I mean, what were – you mentioned you raised $1.2 million in the last five years in total. I mean, what were you hoping for? I'm just kind of curious as to like the the difference in that – you know, what you really aspired to raise versus what you were able to raise for, for context for people as well. Oh, we should have been able to raise 10x more than that easily. Yeah. My competitors have raised 10 to 80x more than that. Um, so, so yeah, with, without that outside capital, things happen a bit slower, but you know, that isn't always a bad thing. Um, particularly in an industry like, um, HR tech or what people are sort of calling diversity tech, that is uh, relatively nascent. Um, I think we've learned a lot more um, along the way than our counterparts that have raised a ton of cash and made big, big investments um, in a specific direction. We're able to be a lot more agile, um, given we, you know, we have to be so responsive to uh, what's happening in the market and not just what investors want to see in MRR. Um, so, so yeah, I, I wouldn't change anything. Um, but I, again, ultimately we have to win. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, to that point, you mentioned the, the funding and I, I guess I'm curious as to like how you think about that as you go about growing the business because, you know, supporting the business off of the business itself versus outside funding. And with there being crowdfunding, like I mentioned, I've had women, I've had women of color, there's other uh, crowdfunding platforms as well where you get supporters, where you raise a decent chunk of money. Have you ever thought of those other options or is that just uh, you just been focused on the business running it itself? I'm curious as to how you look at that as well. Yeah, more so the latter. You don't see a lot of B2B enterprise SaaS companies (laughs) crowdfunding. Um, It also doesn't send a lot of positive signals to um, the marketplace. Uh, If you're using a software product that your, um, you know, $10 billion company relies on, um, you see them raising $5 from Joe Schmo on some crowdfunding campaign. <laughs> um, so it's just, yeah, it's just a total different space. Um, I, I've seen it work for B2C companies. I've seen it work for um, some B2G companies, but B2B SaaS is, is a little bit different. Um, it's it's really hard, but um, you know, it, it pays off in the end if you, if you get it right. Yeah. And on that note, I know you mentioned obviously B2B SaaS company, but I, to that point to go a little bit further into the, the business model behind it, like what is the business model behind it and how have you, how have you evolved that over time? Because there, I'm sure there could be a lot of different ways you could go about that and even looking at pricing and everything as well. Uh, can you take us through that side of things with, with Bundor too? Yeah. So we started off with a relatively transactional business model and that companies would just pay per job posting, much like they do on any other job online job board, like, you know, LinkedIn or indeed or what have you. Um, but we pivoted to a more pure SaaS model in which companies pay an annual or monthly subscription fee um, because we realized in order to be successful and deliver the most value to our customers, we'd have to be a little bit more high touch because um, this type of hiring and engagement uh, requires a bit more focus and intentionality than just, you know, going on a job board or going sifting through a list of a hundred thousand resumes. So, um, so yeah, so we now have, uh, an annual subscription, traditional B2B SaaS pricing model. Gotcha. That makes total sense. Uh, and that's something where I've talked to different people and about that side of things in terms of their pricing's evolved and uh, how their business model has changed. And especially when you look at a company like Blendor, where you started uh, roughly like five years ago or so, uh, how much things can change in that amount of time, especially from the initial idea into you know where it's at now. Um, it's always kind of fascinating to me. And and with Blendor, then I'm curious, I know you you want to win, which I want you to win too, Stephanie. What does that look like for you? What is the vision for Blendor moving forward? Um, so we just, we want to be a category leader in, in terms of equity and inclusion. Um, I think we, the signals are, tar- are talking in that more and more employees and the media and the public are demanding that companies uh, create more diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplaces. The government is a little bit slow to catch up, but I, I think they do so eventually. Um, but whenever a company thinks about whether it be um, hiring or compliance or uh, retention when it comes to equity and inclusion, um, we want Blendor to be sort of the 
or blend score to be sort of the de facto <laughs> standard um, in which they measure and optimize um, their equity and inclusion. And and looking back, just at your your journey with with being an entrepreneur, starting a couple of companies as well. I mean, what what is there? I guess what would you tell other entrepreneurs as they're building their companies or even early stage, just thinking about building a company? Is there anything you you would tell them? Uh, lesson from your your career so far? Uh, I'm just curious about that too, Stephanie. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've heard a ton of entrepreneurs give this advice. Um, so, and, and I always kind of side eye, it, it really, everyone's situation is different. I'm not a mom. Um, I'm divorced. Um, I have the freedom and flexibility uh, by design to kind of go all in on this venture. And that's what was optimal for me. But, yeah. you know, everybody's, everyone's situation is different. All I can say is, you know, make sure it's something that you're really passionate about because there are going to be some really dark and hard nights in days and you're just going to want to, you're going to question, why did I sign up to do this? And <laughs> it doesn't matter how hard you think it is. It's going to be 10 X harder than that. Um, so, um, you know, don't do it just for the money or the, the fame. Um, it has to be something that in your heart of hearts, you, um, you think you are the best person in the world to solve. And on that note, when you're, so, it's so difficult to build a company. There's so much that goes into it. You really have to have a, a lot behind it. How do you recharge away from work, Stephanie? I'm a traveler. Um, so I just got back from Martha's Vineyard. Um, and, you know, I often work from wherever I am because, you know, yeah. now we have the flexibility to do that. But um, I find that going to certain places and spaces allow me to kind of like breathe a little bit. Um, and even just meeting new people and connecting with people. Um, I sometimes feel like I'm a mad scientist in a lab when I'm just working weeks and weeks on end. But when I do get out and go to events or conferences, I, I get a bit of a charge because people will, you know, will reinforce um, the significance of what I'm doing. And it just, it, it helps. It helps a lot. So, And I, I'm a big reader, so I always had to ask, are there any particular books, whether it be personal or professional, that have been impactful for you in your career so far? Oh, good question. Um, probably, uh, I'm a big Malcolm Gladwell fan. I, I love the yeah. way his brain works. Um, so <laughs> Outliers was uh, something that left an indelible mark on me in just terms of the ways that he breaks down, um, you know, how a lot of what we attribute to luck is not <laughs> quite a few <laughs> different circumstances, like even the month you were born in that can determine um, how how you excel in baseball <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so, so yeah, I, I like things like that. Um, I recently finished um, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, The Origins oh, of Our that. Discontent. Um, which kind of breaks down the caste system in the United States. And I think most, uh, from what I've experienced, is the most articulate um, account of, uh, of the ways in which racism and sexism shows up in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, and that's kind of helped me, especially given the current climate process, uh, what's happening and, and my response to it.
And there's so much to discuss. So I, I, I have a few minutes left. So I want to just go, I have a couple of questions about some of your previous uh, work as well. Because uh, like I said, this wasn't your, your first company. So how did your first company come about, Stephanie? Ah, so as mentioned, travel is my therapy. Um, yes. So it was sort of a natural <laughs> evolution of what my passions were. Um, I often was that person who would corral a group of fin- friends to go on a trip which involved, um, you know, booking the accommodations, the rental car, the hotel. Um, (laughs) And and then it sort of evolved as I got older. I planned my wedding. um, And then in business school, we took a ton of trips. um, And it was always a logistical nightmare. And so I created a company called Who and Where, which was focused on optimizing the whole group travel process from uh, distributing costs and payments evenly, um, change management, um, processing bookings and activities, all sorts of things. But travel is really hard because the average consumer optimizes based on uh, price reduction. Um, And so uh, (laughs) there's little, yeah, there's little uh, margin, profit margin there, unless you have a really big uh, brand and marketing budget. Um, But it took me a couple of years to figure that out. Yeah, that's such a tricky space to be in. I know there's a, a couple of companies I've interviewed in the, in the travel space, founders in the travel space, one being Pack Up and Go, which is a surprise travel agency. Um, mm-hmm. They book trips for you, do all that. Basically, you don't know the location. You'll know things about it, like what you need to pack and everything, but you don't know until right before, which is a fascinating thing. And like, uh, Lillian and Rafson, a little scary, but yeah. Yes. But <laughs> especially yeah, during COVID, they, they adjusted, but uh, Lillian has, has just done a great job with that company. And then also uh, Well Traveled, which is like, curated kind of membership community uh, travel uh, platform of sorts. And Samantha Patel, who founded that one, has actually recommended so many different guests. Uh, so shout out to her uh, as well. But there's uh, it, there's still companies in the travel space trying to figure out different models to your point because it is so tricky with the fact that it's all around price a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. And it's also something that, um, you know, is catering to the top 25%. Yeah. Of the U.S. population. I don't I think I had a little bit of privileged blindness and realizing like most people don't take four group trips a year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> most people do like one a year and it's with their immediate family. Um, sure. So. So, yeah, it's um, I think also being in Silicon Valley has made me realize like, OK, you have to think critically about how many just everyday Americans can even afford to take advantage of what you're building. Um, yeah. Which is, is tough. Interesting. When you, yeah. In, in that bubble and having uh, recently graduated from USC with my MBA, there's so many trips with friends that you're, mm-hmm. it is a, a weird situation where you're like, wait a minute, like this is not what everyone does. This is a very strange two years and even stranger with COVID um, happening as well. And uh, one thing, more thing I wanted to uh, talk about quickly. So I know you also decided to get an MBA. I'm curious whether people might be considering that. Why did you end up getting an MBA, Stephanie? Um, I wanted to get an MBA uh, because I needed a little bit more exposure to the fundamentals of building and running an enterprise. Um, I didn't have the benefit of um, having family members or a legacy of large enterprise um, 
owners or even um, employees. So I felt like I just needed a little bit more foundational knowledge. And, um, and then secondly, just the networks, like um, I got a little bit of exposure to what business school life was like while I was at Stanford undergrad. Um, It seemed like they were having the most fun on campus (laughs) um, and building, you know, Yeah. (laughs) yeah, they were building some really great relationships. Um, and then, you know, I always have been fascinated by MIT, um, and just this like elusive technical institution where, you know, the geniuses of our era (laughs) tend to reside. Um, and so, so yeah, I got all three. And now you, you are one of those geniuses that have gone through. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll give you the props. And Thank and uh, normally uh, I want to ask this one more thing around uh, what, if people are out there listening and want to get involved, want to help out, uh, will, you know, investors, whoever, like, what are you looking for, for from Blendora? What, how can people help you at this point? Um, so I'm looking for an army of data scientists and data engineers. Um, one of the key problems of AI, particularly building AI to um, improve outcomes for underrepresented groups is a lack of data. So um, we're actively trying to hire folks for that. Um, And then, you know, for anyone else who may want to um, get involved or sign up to be a candidate or an employer, um, you can go on our website, sign up, or email me, slampkin at blender.com. Follow me on LinkedIn. I post a lot of content on LinkedIn. And uh, and yeah, stay in touch. Awesome. And I will be sure to link up the website and everything with LinkedIn uh, as well in the show notes at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our show today. Yeah, glad to help. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.